This is Julie thanking you for stopping by our science fiction podcast from Third Flatiron Publishing in Boulder, Colorado. It's time for a little cognitive dissonance. You know, the gap between what we know to be true and what the world is telling us. Today we're presenting the short story, False Footfall, by Martin Clark. Martin is from Dumfries in southwest Scotland, but has lived in Glasgow, Birmingham, and London. He's the author of an ongoing series of supernatural noir novellas from Tickety Boo Press, as well as short stories in numerous e-magazines. This anxiety-provoking alternate history first appeared in the Third Flatiron anthology, The Time It Happened. For more from Third Flatiron, check out our website at www.thirdflatiron.com and subscribe on iTunes. And now, here's False Football, read by Sally Bates. There is a Russian proverb that goes, he lies like an eyewitness. But it didn't happen that way. I stared at the Google entry on my GPS's laptop, conscious of the whine in my voice. Dr. Mathers had the rueful smile, sympathetic tone combination down pat. Well, I'm afraid the rest of the world would have to disagree with you there, John. The Apollo 11 disaster is one of those iconic moments in popular culture. Everyone knows where they were when the lander crashed, plus something like 120 million people watched it live on television. I shook my head, unable to accept the evidence before my eyes. No, it was a success, a complete success. They all got back safely. Apollo 12 was the first successful landing, if a somewhat muted affair, and Apollo 13 recovered the bodies of Armstrong and Aldrin. I'm sorry, John, but that's just the way things are. The pain behind my eyes kicked up a notch. I rubbed my temple. I don't understand what's wrong with me. My GP sat back. Well, I could schedule an MRI or refer you to a psychologist, but I'm certain what you're suffering from is temporal psychosis. I must have blanched or something as he quickly raised a hand which, despite the serious-sounding name, is actually quite a mild condition. I see one or two cases a month, and they've all responded to a straightforward treatment regimen. But you're saying that I'm mentally ill. Good God, man, no. You're simply part of that small group who suffer the side effects of prolonged exposure to chronometric radiation. Once we identify the source, I'll be able to recommend appropriate lifestyle changes. He consulted my notes. You're a research fellow at the University of London. May I ask in what area? I assist Professor Rogerson at the Institute of Historical Research. We're... I broke off, my mouth open. Oh. Mathers brightened up appreciably. Oh, indeed. Unfortunately, old chap, historians are four times more likely to suffer from TP than the general population. Current thinking is that being better informed, you are more susceptible to historical what-ifs, um, imagineering. At least he hadn't called it flights of fancy, but still my face burned with embarrassment. I don't see how that could happen. I don't use the damn thing personally. I just analyze transcripts provided by the lip readers. 
Being within a hundred yards is enough in some cases, I'm afraid. The doctor turned to his desk and began scribbling on a pad. I'm prescribing something for the anxiety and signing you off for an initial four weeks. This comes under the heading of an industrial injury, and your academic word simply has to take a back seat where your health is concerned. Understand? Yes, but... But nothing. The HSE will come down like the proverbial ton of bricks on your department if the university lets you stay on. I'm afraid your esteemed Professor Rogerson will have to employ a temporary replacement or find something else to occupy his time for the next month or so. He tapped the pen on his lower lip. Now, the most effective protection against this form of radiation is a foil-lined skullcap or wig. Any decent milliner will carry a range of approved headgear, and they'll be a damn sight better quality than those provided by the NHS. That's it? That's all I have to do? Hide away for a few weeks and then wear an expensive foil hat? He handed me the prescription. Pretty much. As I said, it's a relatively mild condition and easily treated. I'll see you again in about a month's time, but that should be a mere formality. I stood and nodded. Thank you, doctor. You've taken a load off my mind. Don't mention it, and I hope you can enjoy the weekend. Mathers smiled. Take care. In the end, it had all sounded so matter-of-fact, so trivial, but I was in a daze. The short distance between the consulting room and the waiting area simply failed to register. I found myself standing at the desk with a pretty brunette receptionist looking up at me expectantly. Yes, Mr. Banks? My mind stubbornly remained in neutral, and I turned away with a shake of the head. The great outdoors suddenly seemed a harsh and frightening place. People would know. They would stop and point. They would laugh. I stared at the double glass doors, breathing heavily. The receptionist laid her hand on my shoulder, making me start. Are you all right, sir? Would you like me to call you a cab? I forced my mouth into the semblance of a smile. No, no. That's quite all right. But thanks anyway. I'll walk. I need some fresh air. She sounded concerned. Well, if you're quite... But I was gone, preferring potential ridicule to certain sympathy. I wandered aimlessly, shoulders hunched against the catcalls, but never came. There was a pharmacy ahead, and I fumbled in my jacket pocket for the wadded-up prescription. My fingers closed instead around a thin, oblong shape. It was a business card on good quality stock for the Belmarsh Foundation, with an address in Earlsfield. On the reverse side was a handwritten 8.30 p.m., and beneath that, answers. Answers? I wasn't even sure I understood the questions. Despite the grandiose title, the Belmarsh Foundation turned out to be the bottom half of a partitioned terraced house in Dunce Hill Road, not far from the station. I watched from across the street in the shadows of a stunted elm. There were no signs of life. The hallway behind the frosted glass fanlight was in darkness, and heavy-duty Venetian blinds covered the bay window. I couldn't hang around indefinitely, as someone was bound to call the police and report me for loitering, with or without intent. So I crossed the empty roadway and raised my hand to knock on the front door. It opened, taking me by surprise. The surgery receptionist stood there, the brunette, only now she had close-cropped hair. I lowered my awkward fist at a loss for words. She half-smiled and stood to the side. 
Welcome, John. I'm so glad you could make it. I'm Hazel, by the way. Go straight down the hallway to the kitchen, then straight through to the conservatory. The others are already here. I hesitated. Others? Look, what's all this about? It may help to think of Belmarsh as a place where we discuss alternatives, but please, this isn't a conversation for the doorstep. I squeezed past her and walked down the narrow hall, noting a foil-lined hat and wig hanging on the coat rack. The white-tiled kitchen was cold and lacked the usual dirty dishes, cereal boxes, and other clutter normally associated with a living household. I moved on, conscious of Hazel's footsteps close behind. The conservatory was a modern extension sandwiched between the adjacent houses, with only the rear wall offering any view of the narrow garden. Despite the background burble of central heating, there was a damp chill to the air. It was obvious that Belmarsh alternatives weren't discussed very often. Two men sat there waiting. The younger appeared nervous, restless, half-rising as I entered, only to flop down again when his companion didn't stir. The second man was middle-aged with short gray hair, mustache, and a goatee. He seemed to be mounting a one-man Edwardian revival right down to the silver-topped cane and black Homburg resting on the side table. Hazel stood beside me. John, this is Richard. Hesitant smile. And Leon. No reaction. Please take a seat. The four chairs in the room were arranged in a rough diamond pattern, facing inwards. Leon toyed with his cane. You have taken your first small step towards the truth, John Banks. I jerked, as if touched by a live wire, and that earned me a thin-lipped smile. Congratulations. He had an accent, an odd inflection, but nothing I could pin down. I sat there, floundering for a reply, but Hazel came to my rescue. Leon, don't tease the poor man. You know how fragile someone in his condition can be. Leon inclined his head. As you wish, Fraulein. Well, John, we both have an interest in Apollo 11, do we not? Um, yes, well, I guess you could say that. Armstrong and Aldrin, such a tragic loss. Nixon vowed their sacrifice would not be in vain and committed America to establishing Eagle Base as a permanent habitat on the moon. Since then, they have spent billions, trillions of dollars keeping it manned and operational at no appreciable scientific or military benefit. The effect of this distortion on the American economy is felt around the globe. However, no subsequent president has dared to dishonor the dead by pulling the plug, as the saying goes. Yes? The pain, which I'd almost gotten used to, stepped up a notch, and I rubbed my temple. Yes? No, Leon sighed. The success of Apollo 11 spawned several follow-up missions, but the great American public rapidly lost interest, and the program was ultimately canceled. No one has set foot on the moon in over 40 years. I don't understand. Which version is true? You have a memory in your head like a cancer, a memory that is at odds with everything else you remember, a memory that is at odds with what everyone else remembers. He spread his hands to encompass the room, except for us, for if not friends, then we are at least fellow sufferers. I shook my head, as if that would somehow dislodge the false past. No, no, how can we all be having the same hallucination? I'm ill, that's all, ill, a recognized condition. This is just a cruel trick. 
Humanity is at war here, Banks. Leon tapped his own temple with the head of the cane, both up here and in the wide world. Against two or what I cannot say, but our past is being altered in an attempt to manipulate the future. Fortunately, our adversary can only take a broad-brush approach, changing major events. We, on the other hand, are a guerrilla band, able to pick at those loose threads until the entire tapestry of lies unravels. God, Leon, you do go on sometimes. Hazel sounded both amused and irritated. Richard, will you explain in English, please? The younger man leaned forward in his chair. The chronoscope is our window on the past, but we have to make damn sure its presence goes undetected. If our digital camouflage isn't primo, then the link won't open. It won't open because there's no recorded instance of us spying on the past. He scratched his head. I know, I know. It's one of those causality paradoxes that will turn your mind inside out if you think about it too much. Anyway, you could abandon any attempt at concealment and show someone in the past a short message instead. Just a few lines, but more than enough to completely blow their mind. I frowned. But you just said that can't happen because, um, it never has happened. Leon looked and sounded smug. We believe that President Nixon will be very interested in what we have to say, and if there was anyone obsessed with information control, it was him. You're going to warn Tricky Dick about this unknown adversary of yours? What possible good would that do? It's certainly not information he could act on without someone asking damn awkward questions. Either that or they'll have him committed, I blinked. Had him committed, except that they didn't. My head hurts. The older man just smiled. Back in the 1960s, NASA was certain a spectacular disaster before they reached the moon would send manned space travel the way of the Zeppelin. Even a significant postponement was viewed with alarm, and given the available technology, a major systems failure was always a distinct possibility. So they initiated a fallback plan, Project Capricorn. Never heard of it. I should think not. Simply put, it allowed for the simulation of an Apollo mission with the full cooperation of the astronauts involved, culminating in their airdrop as part of a faked reentry sequence. Hmm, I snorted. Bullocks, that's like the worst conspiracy theory I've ever heard of. Someone would have talked, especially after all this time. Leon shook his head. You are dealing with the true believers here, John. Patriots prepared to sacrifice anything, everything. If that meant America was first to the moon. Anyway, a Capricorn simulation was only to be contemplated in extreme circumstances. I stood up. I can't listen to any more of this. I may be ill, but at least I've accepted that I have a problem. You three, you're all in denial. Hazel also stood up, partially blocking my exit. Please, John, just listen for one more minute. I sighed and turned to face Leon directly. So, let me guess. You're going to tell me the Apollo 11, our Apollo 11, was faked? Oh, no, my friend. But it could have been. We stared at each other for a long moment. I sucked in a deep breath. You're going to scare Nixon, convince him to call off the real moon landing in favor of a damned pageant? Christ! The penny continued to drop. Oh, bugger off me! I'd never been in the same room as a bloody chronoscope, let alone programmed one. 
Richard fished a small vacuum-packed object from his pocket. This is a designated chip for the standard Mark II, just like the model you have at the university. He licked his lips. Now, it was a bit of a rush job, seeing as how Hazel didn't give us a heads up until earlier today, but everything should work just fine. All you have to do is swap this baby for the one already in the slot, and away we go. To the observers at this end, it will look like your typical failed insight. End of story. I glared at him. All I have to do? Listen, Dick, apart from the small fact that I don't have security clearance for the operations area, I'm now also banned from the entire building on health and safety grounds. So think again. Leon pointed at me with his cane. Not until Monday, Hairbanks. It will take until then for the bureaucracy to act upon Mather's diagnosis. So we have a small window of opportunity should you have the stomach for this enterprise. It's for all of us, John, Hazel almost pleading. For everyone out there who knows deep down that something is wrong. If I do this, what will it achieve? If the past has been corrupted, can a lie change things back? No one answered. I held out my hand for the chip. See, if this doesn't come off, sunshine, you best hope we don't end up sharing the same padded cell or you are so fucking dead. The Institute staff were used to me working Saturday morning and didn't bat an eyelid when I pitched up around 10. There were other sad sack individuals about, as historians don't tend to have much of a life outside academia. I had no plan, not even an inkling, and already regretted the previous evening's uncharacteristic display of bravado. I walked down to the basement, conscious of the sweat tickling the small of my back. The depleted uranium used in its construction meant that the chronoscope couldn't be housed above ground, plus tucking it away down here simplified security matters. Yet there was no protection detail on duty when I reached the bottom corridor, and the double doors of the operations room stood wide open. The terms gift horse and too easy vied for my attention. I stepped cautiously over the threshold, expecting to be challenged at any moment. All the operators were gathered at the far end of the long room, clustered around some item of equipment giving off a flickering blue aura. Nobody looked in my direction. The chronoscope squatted under the strip lights, a brooding gunmetal toad. It's a mere toy, of course, a trinket. Leon stood beside me. He wore a pristine lab coat and carried a heavy-duty protective visor around his neck. Yet the technology it represents leads inexorably to time travel. Surprise and fear couldn't agree amongst themselves, and so my mind opted for dull-witted acceptance instead. Leon? But if you have access, if you work here, then why did you give me the chip? Why not do this yourself? Because I cannot change anything, Airbanks. Not here, not now. He straightened his tie, and I am out of time. Dr. Prince, sir, one of the technicians called from across the room. He ignored me, so perhaps I was accepted as an assistant or a similar lackey. Prince settled his visor in place. You must excuse me, but they require adult supervision, as the saying goes. He walked over and was absorbed in the huddle. No one paid me any further attention. I stepped up the helpfully labeled targeting array. 
The eject button did just that, and I swapped my chip for the one currently in place. A red light went green. I turned on my heel and left without breaking into a run. The wall clock in my office crawled towards 11 a.m., the time of the scheduled insight. I could have run away, I suppose, but I found being surrounded by my books and my papers more comforting than the thought of skulking in some alleyway. Anyway, if anything went wrong, there would be no place to hide. 10.59 11 11.01 My background headache vanished. The sudden absence of pain made me gasp. For a moment, the room around me seemed unfamiliar, but the feeling faded like the memory of an interrupted dream. I blinked and rubbed my eyes. Everything appeared as it should, apart from the desk calendar, which still showed Friday. I tore off the top sheet and laughed, staring at the daily quotation for Saturday, July 21. One giant leap for mankind. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.